0: Tonight, uh, we want to um, have Dr. Steve Collins from Trinity Seminary uh, come on up and talk to us a little bit about Ephesus tonight. And uh, Steve is the real Indiana Jones. I mean, look at the hat he's got on. He's got a whip. Is that right? Did I give you a whip? You said yes, I did? Yes, I have the whip. You have the whip. Okay. And, uh, but I say that because he is a true archaeologist. He is the uh, president um, at Trinity Seminary which is um here in albuquerque he's an incredible greek professor i took greek from him and uh, he puts it in a way that's easier to grasp than books or other methods that are out there but steve we want to talk about Ephesus tonight and uh, you've been there have you not no heading this october you are going to ephesus but now you taught and studied on it for years have you really now, how do you do that without ever going? Just the well, it's literature difficult. That's I spend most
1: of my time in Israel, and it's hard to get out.
0: That's true. Well, speaking of Israel, when is the last time you went, and what are the digs that you're um, doing uh, in there? In
1: October, uh, we were just there this last October digging at uh, Kersey near Capernaum. Right. And uh, that was very interesting. And uh, we're a little upset this year because we haven't been back yet. We may not get there in 2003.
0: Because of the unrest. Yeah, thing.
1: it's just hard to get a group together, and you know, people are a little... Right, a little
0: antsy to go for uh, obvious reasons. We want to go though, soon. (laughs) Um, Speaking of Ephesus, I have been there and I was there on a very hot day. It felt in Ephesus like it does today here in Albuquerque. It was in the 90s and it was a lot of humidity and, and what I expected to find is a coastal city, yet because of the silt from over the years, this thing is sort of filled in and you have to drive up to it. What are some of the interesting features of Ephesus that would set that city apart, say, from other Roman cities?
1: Well, of course, unfortunately, it did silt in, and it's about seven miles from the coast at this point. Um, unfortunately, uh, f- for those who, who study it for the New Testament era, it was in a serious state of decline uh, by the first century. Uh, actually uh, the, the great feature was the Temple of Artemis, and the Temple of Artemis was probably about uh, three or four times larger than the, than the Parthenon in, in Athens. So uh, it was quite impressive. But that thing had started way back during the days of the Hittites, uh, during the kingdom of Arzawa, and uh, the fertility goddess was uh, worshipped there. And, of course, when the Greeks and the Romans came along, they just simply gave it the name of Artemis, uh, their fertility goddess. And uh, the whole thing uh, went from there. But it was, uh, for the most part, the city was uh, a fertility center, Mm. first and foremost. So it was uh, catering to uh, tourists, worship the fertility goddess and would come there on vacations and uh, get involved in the orgiastic rites at the temple of Artemis.
0: Now that's an interesting concept to us to think of a city that you'd go to that worships this goddess. Now what was the point? Why were people attracted to worshiping this deity?
1: Well, without without going into the obvious, you can, you can see why people would get involved in fertility religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, it catered to the to the sexual promiscuity of human beings, Um, and of course, uh, everybody wants to be successful. They want to have children, they want to have crops, they want to have uh, great uh, successful economic lives, and that's what you did with Artemis. You went there and got involved in uh, the sexual rights that associated with the fertility cult, and by that guaranteed your lifelong success. Hmm.
0: So there's Paul, and he goes to this great city that is was on the trade route as, as well as being a fertility Correct. cult. Is that right? So that people would be exposed to this if they're just shipping goods from one end of the world to another. Paul went there. What, w- what would be some of the things he'd notice walking into that city?
1: Well, of course, uh, you know, every every Greek slash Roman city was, was built around an agora, and so you would have a large open uh, marketplaces. And, of course, uh, in that day and time, uh, the vendors were there. They're still all over the Middle East today. <laughs> They're still
0: there. Uh, Every city you go, you know, in. So
1: you've got all of these. It's principally a tourist city in the time of Paul. So you have all of these, uh, all of these uh, uh, vendors selling trinkets, and of course that takes us right into the Book of Acts, because in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul's preaching got him and the other Christians there in a little bit of trouble uh, over uh, the problems it was causing for. Uh, Demetrius the silversmith and others who were producing a lot of these trinkets actually they were producing little models of the temple of Artemis oh. to sell to the tourists and uh, because the gospel would be against the polytheistic uh, and, and fertility rights and uh, he, he was cutting into business so they had a riot.
0: Why would Paul want to go to this city and spend almost three years there teaching mentoring people sending Timothy and others there why was that strategic to him?
1: Well, I think Paul was always a strategic thinking guy. So what Paul does uh, in almost all of his missions is go to places uh, that are centrally located, central marketplaces on central highway intersections, uh-huh. so that the gospel, uh, when it catches on and discipleship occurs, the thing explodes and then it goes in all directions. So he was always targeting targeting very key locations.
0: And in Acts 19, which you had mentioned, there's this huge riot that breaks out. And they're in this amphitheater Uh, which we have shown slides behind us. That's not it, but um, it it sat like 25,000, there's some pictures of it behind you, people. So was this thing filled with people shouting? It said, for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians?
1: Yeah. In fact, it seems as they walked through the city yelling and screaming, great is the goddess Artemis and so on, that people just kind of got swept up in the thing. And as they walked along, it's, uh, the, the, the scripture actually says that when they got there and in the middle of this riot, a lot of the people didn't even know why they were there. You know, people, you know, it's a good riot. Let, let's get yeah, involved. Right. They didn't even know what the subject was. It was just fun, yeah, you know, exactly. entertainment.
0: Huh. Um, you know, sometimes I'll read reports or, or articles of church planning. And, of course, I'm a pastor. I'm interested in this kind of a thing. And people talk about demographics. And there's certain climates that are better than other climates to plant churches. And, and you know, uh, we want a perfect government that will be conducive to our blah, blah, blah. And yet, here's Paul in a very pagan climate, hostile climate. And he plants a church that at that time was very successful. And um, besides the obvious, besides the obvious idolatry, what would be some of the obstacles uh, to church planning that Paul would have faced in Ephesus? And uh, maybe you could k- kind of talk about that.
1: Well, of course, uh, um, it, it was a heart of darkness. The whole area, the whole culture uh, was a heart of darkness. But still, you know, we could say th- that made it very difficult. But yet, the darker the dark, yes, the lighter the light. Yeah. And so the gospel planted in, in into the darkest societies anywhere in the world, there or or anywhere, uh, the gospel shines very bright. It stood in stark contrast yes. to the emptiness of mm. that kind of religion.
0: What a great message. you know you're talking about that. I read an article that um, you could see somebody in World War II in the darkness of Europe, an airplane, if somebody lit a match, you could see it 11 miles away because there was just pitch black. And, you know, light shines in the darkest places, and what a message that is to us that we may have jobs or families, uh, we may live in a neighborhood that just seems so spiritually dark, and yet God has us there for a purpose. He wants us to be a light. And then I think about that in Ephesus, and Jesus wrote a letter, a postcard, you might say, to this church that started its own spiritual decay here's a city in decay but here's a church that once was vibrant that very soon after it was planted was already uh, leaving its first love
1: yeah exactly and the point of of leaving the first love was that the city was full of people in need of Christ that's Jesus first love he comes to seek and to save that which is lost lost. we sometimes tend to get a little sidetracked and get in on the church paraphernalia, we get involved in the churchy stuff, right? Uh, and we leave. We easily leave the first love. Yes. So um, I, I think that was the problem in the church at Ephesus. They eventually forgot that the darkness is where the light should go. And sometimes when we become Christians, it's easy to get so caught up in the light that we forget where the darkness is. But the darkness is really where we need to go to shine the light. Now,
0: today, there's just ruins. How long was it before the church just sort of decayed into
1: oblivion. Do you know that? Well, you know, it's, uh, the city itself was in a severe state of decay, as I said, by the first century. Uh, within, the, within a century from that, the city pretty much had shut down because the, uh, the harbor had, had ceased to be functional and it uh, was no longer used as a, as a major commercial trade center. Um, however, uh, there, uh, there was a church built there during the Byzantine period, and uh, um, you know, continued on uh, somewhat for some period of time. Really? but but uh, I, I think the uh, I think the period of the church there uh, is probably very reflective of of the seat of the culture. It was in decline. It mm-hmm. was going nowhere. And uh, of course, again, Paul planted it strategically because early on, it was a place from which the gospel could jump into other areas. So, um, you know, we could say that uh, the church went in decline because it left its first love. Mm. Uh, and indeed, maybe that's the case. Uh, but the city did, did go into a serious uh, collapse.
0: Steve, since you are the real Indiana Jones, do you know where the Ark of the Covenant is?
1: Yes, it's, it's actually in a little compartment uh, we have in the basement of the museum. Uh, <laughs>
0: Your museum. Here <yourself>. in Albuquerque. <laughs>
1: We have, well, that we have, would be interesting. We have pretty good proof of that, actually.
0: Tell us about that. You, you have a, quite a museum and new things going on at Trinity Seminary.
1: We just, um, of course, uh, many people have probably been uh, to the museum. If they haven't, they need to. Uh, we have about 3,000 years of biblical, uh, biblical artifacts. Uh, we just acquired a new collection of artifacts from a museum in Columbus that closed down and chose to join us here and so we've added uh, literally a priceless collection of over a 1,000 new artifacts uh, to the collection here. Fantastic stuff. Oh. And uh, so we're very excited. Uh, you know, we're, we're antsy to get that thing up and running. It's in storage, and that's frustrating. But a little bit by little bit, we're going to get the stuff up on display.
0: Okay, of all the things you have in the museum, what's, your, what's the coolest thing? What's your favorite artifact? That's oh, hard for an archaeologist. Boy, but that is really difficult.
1: Just, uh, just yesterday, in fact, I uh, get to do this frequently. This is fun. It's like Christmas. Un, un, uh, unwrapping packages from the Near East. Got one yesterday. Uh, opened it up, and inside it is a wonderful brick from Babylon. From Iraq.
0: From Iraq. Right, Iraq. It's
1: not anything out of the museum in Iraq. Okay. Put that note in there. <laughs> and um, we uh, uh, we opened it up, and uh, the inscription. Uh, we knew it was an inscribed brick, but as we look at the inscription on the brick, it actually says, uh, "I Nebuchadnezzar, son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon." Uh, fantastic brick with the name of Nebuchadnezzar on it. Wow. So that's that's cool stuff.
0: That's right? very cool. So. To that person who says, Oh, the Bible is just a bunch of men's stories. Here you have living artifacts through history that speak of its authenticity and veracity.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, Steve, it's thank you
0: for joining us tonight. It's always an eye opener and very instructive. Good to be
1: here as usual. Thanks, Skip. God bless you.
0: All right. Open your Bibles to chapter 2 of Ephesians. We opened up last week by saying, turning your Bibles to the Grand Canyon of Scripture. That's a phrase that Ruth Paxson back in the thirties coined in respect to the book of Ephesians. The Grand Canyon is a great way to describe the book of Ephesians because it has such incredible beauty and depth as well as breadth to it. The Grand Canyon is between three miles to twenty miles wide in some places and about 200 miles long. The perspective on the rim of the Grand Canyon, it's spectacular. If you go there, when the light is just coming up, you can't see the bottom of it. It's dark. But as the sun goes overhead and you see its beauty and all the colors change, it's magnificent. And, interestingly, Paul uses a phrase, if you go over to chapter 3, I know I'm skipping ahead, But in verse 17 he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul says, I hope that you know something that's unknowable, that you might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." That's the Grand Canyon of Scripture, the book of Ephesians. It tells us who we are in Christ. It gives us our position, tells us what we used to be, where we're going. We get a great panoramic view. And tonight we're going to look at a panorama of our salvation. The book is on high ground. It lets us see plainly who we really were, B.C., before Christ. What you really are now and where you're really going. Now, the Grand Canyon isn't the same to everybody. You know, people have different perspectives. I heard of three people that went to the Grand Canyon. One was an artist, one was a minister, and one was a cowboy. And they looked into that huge chasm. And the painter remarked, typically, as an artist would, what a magnificent scene to paint. The minister looked at it, and of course he said, what a marvelous example of God's handiwork. The cowboy, a little more pragmatic than the first two, looked down in that big hole and said, what a a terrible place to lose a cow. (laughs) And it could be that up to this point you've sort of gotten lost looking into this huge chasm of the book of Ephesians, there's some phrases you've picked up on and a verse here and there that you've memorized, but you've sort of gotten lost in the message. And it's been my prayer since a few weeks ago when we started this that that would change, that you would see the wealth of the believer, what you have, who you are, where you are in Christ. That you would understand not only your wealth, but your walk. Therefore, as is Paul's typical pattern in his letters, because of who you are and what you have, here's how you are to live. And then finally, the warfare of the believer. If you know and do what I just said you should know and do, you're gonna be a target of the enemy. You need to learn how to have a good fight. And that's the last part of the book, the warfare of the believer. But today, tonight, we begin in chapter 2, we're going to probably make it down to verse 10, hopefully. That's the subject I want to cover, the subject matter I want to cover. We begin in darkness. We begin in the graveyard in chapter 2, but by verse 10 we end up in glory. From the graveyard of sin to the glory of the throne of God, change. Verse 1, we start out in Death Valley. You were dead, Paul said, dead in trespasses and sins. But by verse 10, we're in Graceland. Not Elvis's Graceland, thank you very much, but God's Graceland, and where we're going past, present, and then future. If I were to paint, and it's good that I'm not an artist. but. As I look at some art today, I think, I could be an artist. I could do that. If I were asked, if I were commissioned to paint the history of the world, and I would do it from my perspective, my own personal history, my testimony. Knowing what I know, and based upon Ephesians, I would find the blackest, darkest paint I could find. I would smother the entire canvas in the darkest, blackest paint. I'd let it dry. It would absorb every bit of light that comes upon it. And then I'd find the most luminescent, brightest white I could find. And starting in one little corner I would begin with just a twinkle, an opening of light, starting from the corner and flooding through into the darkness till it permeated the whole thing. Then. I suppose I'd have to rip up the canvas and put a whole new one up there, or just cover the black with all white, then add some color to it. Verses 1 through 3 tell us what we were saved from, verses 4 through 10 tell us what we are saved for. We go from the darkest paint in Paul's own wording, he selects words and descriptions. Um, that are sort of like out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie, the language of a graveyard. But the picture that he paints gets better and better because verse 4 is the hinge as God steps in and floods us with his light. Also I think it's pretty easy to compare Genesis chapter 1 with Ephesians chapter 2 in that in Genesis 1 you have a creation, in Genesis 2 you have death and a recreation. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, Moses writes. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's strikingly familiar to this recreation account. And you he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." When Paul speaks about your previous life, our previous life, when Paul speaks about the world apart from Christ, he doesn't say, the world's really sick. He says, the world's dead. Before you came to Christ, you had a death sentence against you. You were DOA, dead on arrival, born, spiritually dead, insensate, unable to appreciate spiritual things, unable to get it when it came to spiritual truth, totally unregenerate, as theologians like to say. They like bigger words. Dead, he said, dead in trespasses and sins. David interestingly remarked on that. He said, I was conceived in iniquity. I came forth from my mother's womb speaking lies." He knew what it was like to be a child in this world. He knew what it was like to raise a child in this world. Interesting, you don't ever have to teach a child a lie. They do it naturally. You could be raised in the most moral, godly home, but there is that old nature, that human nature that is corrupt from the get-go. So you were dead, and he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So because we're dead, we need something. We need life. We need a resurrection. We don't need self-help. It's not that, well, you just are maladjusted and you need a good psychological adjustment. If you send a person to the best universities and give him or her the best education, you'll have... A very intelligent sinner. Send that person to a psychotherapist, and you'll have a very well adjusted sinner. Send that person to the health spa, let him pump up his muscles and be physically fit, and go to the best health food store and the best physician. Great, you'll have a very healthy sinner. But take that person to the cross to have his blood washed or his sins washed with the blood of Christ atoned for, and you'll have, what's most important, a forgiven sinner born again. Because we're dead we need spiritual birth. Now let me give you a thumbnail sketch, if I may, of of this spiritual death, this condition that we're in, all of us before Christ, born with, we live with, until there's a change. It all started with Adam. Adam and Eve way back in the garden. Our first parents, they're sometimes called. Adam is sometimes referred to as the federal head. What Adam did caused something to ripple in its effect throughout history and humanity and affect us. Now, would you keep a marker here or put your index finger here and turn back to Romans chapter 5? As you're turning to Romans 5, a passage, if you've come here for any length of time, you've read it with me a few times. But without turning to Genesis, you remember where God said, Adam, you know, you can eat anything, don't touch that tree, don't touch the fruit of the tree, it's in the midst of the garden. In the day that you eat thereof, you'll surely what? Die. There will be death. And the day he did it, there was death instantly. He began to die physically, and he was separated from God spiritually. There was a separation. That's what death is. But it sums it up neatly for us, Paul does, in Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. There's four stages as this ripple effect was created by Adam. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men, because all sin, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come." Notice four phases. Verse 12 gives you three of them, death or sin entered, death entered, Death spread, verse 14 is the fourth, death reigned. The theological term for this is called depravity. We are depraved. We are born depraved. Now, let me define that because you hear the term and you might be very insulted. Preacher called me depraved. I don't like him. Depraved does not mean you are bad as you possibly could be. It doesn't mean that. It means you are as bad off as you possibly can be. Not as bad, n- not doing certain things that would generate the expression of the very worst part of your nature or character necessarily, but you are as bad off before God as you possibly can be. That's depraved. We were born that way. We were born that way. When Adam sinned, he generated a constitutional change in his character that rippled throughout humanity so that everyone born after him had the disease, had the effect of what Adam had done. Sin entered, death entered, death spread, death reigned. When I was a boy, one of my favorite things to do in the summer was to leave home with my family on a vacation. My dad loved the national parks. And I remember one summer being at Jackson Lake, Wyoming at the foot of the Grand Tetons. Have you ever been there? Magnificent. What's magnificent is if you catch it early in the morning, you can look out over Jackson Lake, the Grand Tetons are on the other side of the lake, and yet the lake is so perfectly calm, pristine, untouched that you can see an exact mirror of the Tetons in the lake about as well as you can by looking up at them. Now, it's in reverse. It looks like a big W. It's upside down. But it's perfect, perfect mirror image. I remember looking at the lake and then taking a small stone. It wasn't very big. Here's this huge lake with this magnificent portrait of the mountain range one small, flat stone skipped across that lake. You know, it can really fly when the water's glassy. Marred the image, rippled across and just shattered the whole thing. Adam threw the stone that caused a ripple effect that you and I still feel today, which means we were born dead. Born in trespasses and sins. Dead because of trespasses and sins. And that's why we need, as Jesus said, to be born again. A spiritual birth to counteract that. Okay. Go back to Ephesians 2. We've made it through half a verse. I say half a verse because notice the description of death. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now most of you know already that a frequent word used in the New Testament 173 times or thereabout is this word sin, harmatia, to miss a mark. Sometimes it was used in archery of not hitting the mark, not hitting it at the bullseye, falling short of the goal, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's say you had 20 arrows and I had 20 arrows and there's a bullseye. You pull your bow back and all 19 of your arrows hit the red bullseye. I would congratulate you as being much better marksman than I. But the 20th arrow you pull out of your quiver and you aim and you fall short of the mark. I get up. First arrow, I hit the fence. Second arrow, beyond the target out in the field. Third arrow, I graze a cow. I mean, I'm really a bad shot. (laughs) All 19 of my arrows, the first 19, aren't even on the board, but the last arrow happens to get a bullseye. I've missed the mark, but you've missed the mark, too. Oh, but you're a much better mark, much better aim than I am. You're right. It only proves that I am a better sinner than you are but you're still a sinner. You've missed the mark. God's mark, perfection, none of us ever can hit. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So part of the nature of us is that we've fallen short. Second word, trespasses. Now this is different. This is a willful, deliberate act. This is crossing over, transgressing against a known boundary. The first time Junior walks on a just waxed kitchen floor is a sin. He did it in ignorance. He didn't know that. And then we tell him, don't ever do it again. The next time you wax the floor and he looks at you with that little impish evil grin, like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it's really fun to just do it. Now, if he does it a second time, it's not a sin, it's a transgression. It's willful, it's deliberate. And that's the difference, generally, between sins and transgressions. So, you as he made alive, that's the good news, here's the black paint, you were dead in trespasses and in sins, in which, in which, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, you fulfilled his will, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. Oh, what a dark picture that is, huh? Aren't you glad he started out and you, has he made alive? We were really dead, not just mostly dead, all dead. You remember Prince's Bride, right? When Wesley was brought to Miracle Max. You remember that? You don't. want me to tell it to you? I just love that story so much. Okay, Wesley's the hero of the movie and they bring him to Miracle Max and his two buddies said, Miracle Max, you're the only guy that we could ever ask to do this because our friend is dead and we need your help. We need a miracle. And Miracle Max looks at him and goes, Oh, you know so much. Well, it just so happens that your friend isn't all dead. He's just mostly dead. And everybody knows there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Anyway, he, they get their miracle in the sky. The no, fleas. That's not worth a hand clap. You were all dead. All dead. And to prove it, look where you walked. You once walked peripeteo. To order your behavior, the word sometimes is translated. Um, to walk about to walk around sometimes it 's even translated to meander or to browse, and I think that 's a really good concept to describe this there 's a difference between meandering and walking somewhere with a goal to meander is to is to um, sort of muster about aimlessly without a goal but but to walk somewhere with a goal is different. You meandered, you browsed. have you ever bought something in a store that you regretted later on, you had some extra money, it was payday or something, and you had time to kill, so you walk into your favorite store and there's a salesman. May I help you? Hey, that looks great on you. And you end up buying it all because you browsed. You browsed your way into something you regretted later. Paul is saying you were browsing in this world, meandering, without a solid goal in mind. According to the Course, the direction, one translation puts it, weather vane. Ever seen a weather vane? It goes wherever the wind blows. the wind blows that way, the weather vane points that way. If the wind shifts, the weather vane points with the wind. You are just blowing with the wind, going with the flow, doing what everybody else does, following the pressure of the world. Folks, the world has for you a mold. You know that, right? a concept, a construct, if you don't fit within their construct, if you don't think their thoughts, act their way, listen to their music like their movies, you will be shunned by them. You will not be accepted by them. That's the mold. What does Paul say in Romans? Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Hey, the wind blows. It's amazing to me both as a person, as a father, as a pastor, observing human nature in all of us. How much pressure fads put on people. Oh, we got to have those jeans, man. Those are cool. Who said they're cool? They look ugly. No, no, they're cool. Well, who said they're cool? Well, everybody's into it. Hence, they're cool. The pressure of the crowd to manipulate our decisions and our values. So just blowing with the wind without a clear... Direction. Meandering. What a picture. What a dark, dark picture. According to the Prince of the Power of the Air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. You know what that is the old nature, the nature you were born with, and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, just as others. Paul speaks about our nature. By nature you were children of wrath. Okay, do you get it? You're born dead. Because we are sinners by nature and by choice. The choice comes later, the nature we begin with. We're by nature under God's wrath, children of wrath. When a dog barks in your neighborhood, do you ever remark and say, that is a dog because it barked? If you did, I would say, well, I can bark. And I can do a pretty good bark, honestly. I can do a pretty good bark imitation. I do it sometimes in public places just to have people turn around and think, there's a dog in here. (laughs) But I'm not a dog, trust me. Making the sound of a dog doesn't make you a dog. No, you don't say, because it barked, it's a dog. You would say, because it's a dog, it barked. It acts according to its nature. Okay, take that example into this. Would you say, that person's a sinner because he sinned? Nope, you can't say that. The real description is, he sinned because he's a sinner. That's his nature. That's his nature. We were born dead, we were born with the sin nature. Now there was a scorpion who wanted to cross a pond. It's a fable. In case you're saying, I'd like to find the source to that quote. (laughs) And you know, scorpions don't swim, but turtles do. And so this wise scorpion said to the turtle, hey, let me hop on your back and hitch a ride over to the other side of the pond." And the turtle said, "'What do you think, I'm nuts? You're a scorpion. I know that I'll be out in the middle of this pond and you're going to sting me and then I'll die.' And the scorpion said, "'Now, what logic is there in that? Because if I sting you and you go under, I'm going to go under too.' The turtle said, "'You got a good point there. Hop on.'" They make their way across the pond, and about midway the scorpion puts his stinger high in the air and gives it all that he can and stings the turtle. The turtle feels it in the back of the neck. Well, as they're both going under the water and tumbling, the turtle turns to the scorpion and says, Do you mind if I ask you a question? You said there was no logic in you stinging me, so why did you do it? And the scorpion said, It's not about logic, it's my nature. It's my nature to do it. We were by nature the children of wrath. Folks, this is why self-help won't cut it, or education won't cut it, or religion won't cut it. That's why we need salvation. That's why we need to trust in the perfect sinless one and as an act of grace be saved. And that's the whole premise that Paul is drawing here. We were dead. And, you know, dead people can't improve their condition. Have you noticed that? they don't become a little less dead the next day. One isn't a little worse off dead than the other. They're both dead. They lack capacity. Dead people can't hear the conversation that goes on in the funeral parlor. Sometimes I will watch and I understand the emotion behind it as the person speaks to the corpse, tells stories and talks about. And I understand that. But I also realize The person can't hear you. We go by the casket, oh, she looks so good. Ever seen a corpse sit up and go, well, thanks. (laughs) You like the dress? So when a person says, I've tried to read the Bible, I can't understand it, you're right, you can't understand it. That's the repercussion of being dead. You lack the capacity. You are insensate. You are unable to understand. The natural man, Paul said, 1 Corinthians, remember? The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Imagine having a concert for one deaf or showing a slideshow to somebody blind. They lack the capacity to appreciate. Because we are dead in trespasses and sins, We are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Okay. Having said that, look at verse 4. Because this is where it turns. Here's the hinge. This is where it gets good. From black, now the light shines. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. Do you notice those two words that mark the beginning of verse 4? But God. Notice that, please. And if you haven't underlined it or encircled it like I have in my Bible, do it now. That is some of the best, most sublime, most eloquent, most inspirational words in all of literature here's how black the picture is. Here's how hopeless you were before Christ. You were dead on arrival, but God. That's your testimony. And you could spin it however your testimony was, but this is how you were. But God stepped in. Miracle Max, miracle Jesus. You were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy. You see, those two words change everything, don't they? Do you remember in Romans 5, Paul says something like, for scarcely would someone die for a righteous man, yet perchance maybe for a good man someone would die. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrated his love for us. changes everything. The life of Joseph, another instance. Joseph tells his brothers years after they had sold him into slavery and he had been through what he had been through, all the pain, all the suffering, now the second in command over Egypt. He says, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive as it is this day but God changes everything. So, start inserting that into your life this week. My situation is horrible. My finances are in the pits, but God. I'm struggling with an issue in my life. It's gotten such a grip on me. Granted, it's tough, but God. And don't settle for anything less. Relationally is it tough, but God. That's the great hinge that Paul bases everything else on right here. And notice, he is rich in mercy, oh, aren't you glad? There, there's two words that are all over this New Testament, and, and especially in this letter. Mercy, grace, and God happens to be wealthy in both of those commodities, mercy and grace. Now, mercy and grace are attached to something very important. Listen carefully. Justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. We all want justice for other people. We never want it for ourselves. I'm I'm speaking the truth. Some of you don't go the speed limit when you drive. Yet, you're the first one to say when somebody passes you so quickly, where's a cop when you need one? Oh, they ought to be pulled over. You shouldn't, of course, because you have somewhere very important to go to now. So justice is important for everybody else. It's getting what you deserve. Then there's a thing called mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. There's a third part of this. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. You say, Skip, that all sounds very similar, but it's not do the traffic thing again. You're going down the street, over the speed limit, police pulls you over. Says, Skip, you were going 40 miles over the speed limit. Again? (laughs) Yep, again. Now, I'm going to give you a citation. I deserve it, right? I've broken the law. I deserve to pay the fine. That's justice. But what if the police smiles and says, you know what? Skip, you deserve it. I'm not going to give it to you. I'd say, oh, thank you, officer. Thank you. Bless you. God bless you. (laughs) Let me pray for you before you go, (laughs) officer. Because I deserved a fine, but he withheld it from me. That's mercy, not getting what I deserve. But grace is something. It's getting something I don't deserve. Now, I'll give you an example, though this is never going to happen. But let's say you did 40 miles over the speed limit. You deserve a ticket. He goes through that. He writes out the ticket. And then he says, here's the money. It's going to cost you $85. Here's the money from my pocket. I'll pay your fine. Oh, and by the way, here's an extra 50 bucks. Take your wife out to dinner. (laughs) Ain't going to happen, by the way, (laughs) ever. But it did eternally with God who gave us, who lavished upon us undeservedly, gracefully, his blessings. Conferred upon you adoption, as we already covered in chapter 1. Redemption through the blood of his Son. Justice, but God is rich in mercy and grace because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a phrase that you read about and you kind of just sort of skip over and you go, what, what, what does that mean? But go back to verse 3 of chapter 1 once again. Let's tie a few loose ends together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies or in heavenly places in Christ. Connect that to verse 20 of the same chapter. When he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him, Christ, at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. In other words, Jesus Christ, by virtue of his resurrection power, rose, ascended, and he is far above, being in the heavenly places, literally in heaven, at the right hand of God, is above all of the dominions and principalities, all demonic forces, every force, every power on earth because you're in Christ, because God places you in Christ, we've already covered what that means last time, you are with him. That's your position. You are also above all principalities and powers. Now that that doesn't mean you're immune from temptation, you're immune from attack. You'll never get attacked by the devil again. It doesn't mean that. Because if you're a Christian, you're a target. Hell doesn't give anybody a standing ovation for being committed to Christ. You can expect some activity, counteractivity. But it does mean the power of God for victory is available. It's available to all of us. Because you're in Christ who is seated in heavenly places far above all principalities. So, verse 6, chapter 2. Raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come. Okay, stop. We've covered our past, beginning in verse 1. Beginning in verse 5, our present, but now our future. Here's the panorama. The sun comes up over the Grand Canyon. Ooh, starts getting more colorful, better as we go. And here's your future. You want to know what you're going to look forward to? It's summed up for you. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Allow me to paraphrase, may I? You're saved. You're God's child. And you're going to heaven. But that's just the beginning. It will take God all of eternity, ages upon ages, to fully reveal and show to you the extent of His love. Ages, it will take God all of eternity to demonstrate to you fully, apart from the cross, apart from making you his child, the riches, the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Heaven isn't just a place, oh goody, I'm going to heaven. It's an experience. We're going to talk more about it in a couple Sunday mornings, but it is an experience that just probably will get better and better and better and better. Not more boring and more boring as I sit on a cloud in a white robe and play a harp, but better and better and better. No wonder David wrote in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, the Bible talks about heaven and the future and what we can expect, but sometimes Christians are bothered by the fact that it's done sort of cryptically or it's done metaphorically or it's, it's spoken with signs rather than plain language unfolded in detail. A couple of reasons, I think, for that. Number one, it would be like trying to fit the Pacific Ocean in a cup. The container lacks the capacity to contain the fullness of the ocean. Can't do it. You can't cram all of the description of eternity into our minds. And number two, though it's written about, it could be distracting. It should be a motivation, not a distraction. A kid sees cake at the end of the table. Ooh, I want it now. You can't have it now. You have to eat your dinner first. Eat those asparagus spears and, and Brussels sprouts. It's awfully hard for the kid to concentrate on eating the Brussels sprouts when he can see with his own eyes the fullness of the cake in front of him. Mom will be smart to just say, there's cake for dessert, your favorite kind. But don't let him see it all right now. Put it out of there. But, but let him concentrate on here and now with the promise and the motivation of something in the future. And so heaven is written about and it is a motivation more so than a destination, here and now. Okay, verse 8 and 9 and 10, let's finish this up. Because verse 8 and 9, by the way, is so basic and fundamental. And I've discovered something about us as Christians. You know where we usually get messed up? In the foundation. And if the foundation of any building is messed up, the life is messed up. The foundation of what it means to be a Christian is put in these two verses. For grace you, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Truth number one, your salvation is solely upon the grace of Almighty God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It is an act of God's unmerited favor. Well, it's because I was raised in a Christian family and I've got this great heritage. I'm a moral person. You're saved by grace. Because of that, you can never brag. You know, sometimes I hear testimonies that I really wouldn't call them testimonies. They're bragamonies person talks about his life, how it used to be, and he goes into graphic detail about his past sins to the point where it sounds really good, really juicy. In fact, by the end of his testimony, you think, I kind of want to do all this stuff he used to do, not what he's doing now. That was pretty exciting, the way he's talking about it. And people will sometimes brag about who they are and their their accomplishments now in Christ. One of the things I'm going to love about heaven is there will be no bragging. No one will stand up and give a long list of their accomplishments. It'll just be glory to God and worship the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. No bragammonies, only a testimony. We can't boast. We can only boast in God's grace. Why does a vintage car lover look at an old wreck and go, wow, that's cool? Is it because the rust attracts him? The decay is something that just really gets him going? No, it's because he sees the potential of restoration and he loves the process of transformation. When God gets people and saves people, it's so that he might get all the glory. That's why it's grace. God doesn't go to the new car lot and buy a brand new car. He buys a wreck. Rusted, beat up, and goes, ah, that's my type. Because when I'm done fixing this up, have you ever seen a vintage car fully restored? It looks better than any new car you can buy today. It's so cool. And the owner shows it off like, look at that. Put a lot of hours into that puppy. It's worth it. And so God selects us." And that's why Paul said, look around, look at your calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of this world. Oh, how I love that verse. When I read that first for the first time, my heart warmed. It's like I raised my hand and said, here I am, Lord, number one on the list, foolish thing. Some of you know me well and you're going, yep, he's right. He really is a foolish thing. That's God's grace. Okay, not of works, so that anyone should boast. Last verse, for we are his workmanship. Oh, oh, by the way, notice something. Just, just, it hit me. For by grace you have been saved. Verse eight, true faith, and that not of yourselves. You can't even brag about your faith. Today we have with us a great man of God, who's done many great exploits. He's a great man of faith. So. It's not his faith. God gave him the ability to believe. Remember Acts chapter 3, the lame man that was healed at the gate, beautiful? And Peter said, It's not by our goodness or anything we've done that made this man walk, but it's faith that comes through him. God gave us the faith to reach out and grab that man's hand and bring him up to his feet. It's a gift. So we can't even brag about our great faith that we mustered up in the time of our darkest moment. Well, that's good. That's neat. But the testimony is you're dead. God stepped in, breathed life into you, and gave you the ability to believe. So it's all grace. Okay, Okay. I am, I am closing. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're God's work of art, he is saying. It was put on the video, Poema is the word, workmanship, literally. It could be translated work of art, poem comes from that. Your are God's poem. You're God's masterpiece. What does New Mexico have that's one of the most beautiful things every afternoon? Sunsets, unparalleled. I mean, wow. And where I live, in the morning sun rises, amazing. Sometimes I look at them and go, cool, that's a great picture, Lord, thanks. The other night I was thanking God for the stars that are in such abundance where I lived, and as soon as I, as soon as I was praying and looking up, I saw the shooting star just dart across the sky. Oh, thanks, Lord, for that little gift. That's magnificent, the Milky Way galaxy. But what's God's greatest work of art? Is it the Alps? Is it the Hawaiian Islands? They're pretty nice. Is it the solar system and the galaxy? Nope. You're looking at it. I don't just mean me. I mean all of us. (laughs) Look around at all of us. Made in the image of God, marred, but recreated in Christ Jesus. You are the pinnacle of God's masterpiece. You're God's work of art. Now know this, that an artist can look at a blank canvas and in his mind's eye see a finished product. That's what makes him a good artist or her a good artist. He sees the end from the beginning. I I know what I'm going to do. Onlookers don't get it. If you've ever watched an artist paint a picture, they put in certain colors and draw lines, and you go, ugh, ugly. This guy's not worth his salt. But give it time. Soon he fills it in, or she puts other colors in and other designs, and then suddenly it starts taking on a life. Beautiful, wow, masterful, we say. We look at our lives sometimes, and we see the flaws. We don't see the work of art. We don't see the finished product. We go, blech, gray. What's that big blotch of paint doing there? But then suddenly, because God is the master artist, unrelenting, he works and he works and he works, and he fashions you. And it's a masterpiece. And onlookers may not get it, but God gets it. So tonight, this week, from now on, stop looking at all of the blotches in your life, though they are there, and you should connect with and cooperate with the Holy Spirit to push them out and to become a vessel of honor for the Lord to you, certainly. That's called holiness. That's called sanctification. We have a role in that. But understand that in the father's mind he sees the end. See, when God calls you his work of art, these aren't the words of a doting father who who denies the the faults of his child. You know, some dads do that. Oh, my son's perfect. My my daughter's perfect. (laughs) Now, let me cop a clue here, buddy. He's not. She's not. Oh, no this isn't a doting father denying. This is an all-knowing, all-seeing father seeing the finished product. Something else, what God starts, he finishes. He does not work on your life and say, oh, forget it, hopeless case, next. (laughs) He who has begun a good work, Paul wrote to the Philippians, will continue it till the day of Christ. Now because you are a work of art, you know, you can tell a lot about an artist by the art, right? So, though your life isn't perfect, though there's still some blotches and the lines aren't quite defined and and the end isn't fully there, what at this point does your life reveal? Because being a masterpiece requires some responsibility. It's going to tell others who look at us a lot about the painter. So when they look at your life, do they say, what a horrible artist. Who got a hold of you? You call yourself a Christian? Remind me never to be one if that's the way a Christian is going to live. But is there something attractive in your life? Imperfect though it might be, something attractive that would say, I'd like to know this artist. Do you think he could take a wreck like me and fix me up? Here is workmanship. Well... There's more to say and no time to say it. So that's the great thing about a Bible study. Next week we'll say more and we'll study more.